Good evening, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Gavin Tolometti. And I'm the co-host, Chantal Lemire. So we are here talking with uh, Jeremy Johnston, who is a PhD candidate in the English and Writing Department. Am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, Writing Studies. And thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Ah, good. Uh, so, so can you tell us, like, what is it in um, English and Writing Studies that actually goes on? And is it like a is it mainly just a lot of reading and writing, or do you guys have another element that everyone else is not aware of? Uh, yeah, I know one of the um, notions of the English department is, that gets gets tossed around is that we kind of just sit in our offices, we read books, um, we talk about reading those books, and then we talk about the books. Uh, but there's actually a lot of really interesting work that goes on from a variety of different fields. Um, if there's one thing that I can kind of promote about it is that English is actually a very heavy, heavily interdisciplinary field in the sense that um, we use text as a way of kind of um, centralizing some of our thoughts about a number of broader issues. So we're investigating historical issues, we're investigating social issues, political issues, language issues, psychological issues, a whole host of things that kind of get brought together um, and we use the novel or short story or a poem, what have you, as kind of an artifact to unpacking some of that. Uh, and so there's actually a lot of really broad things that go on, and we kind of have to wear a number of different hats at the same time. Uh, sometimes not the best, but we try. So for your research, what's the, uh, what's the issue that you're trying to unpack? So my particular interest is in the field of American literature, uh, contemporary American literature, and I kind of investigate um, adolescent mental health. Uh, my concern essentially centers around um, the way that adolescent characters uh, learn about mental health, the way they talk about mental health, whether it be from friends, family, media, what have you, um, and looking at how they think about their own thought process, essentially. Um, because mental health concerns are, you know, psychological, uh, a narrative is a great way, especially a first-person narrative, is a great way of kind of unpacking the thought process of someone who's going through a particular uh, mental illness or form of distress. And so there are interesting ways in which the novel can help us kind of uncover what those interesting facets are and how they might help us understand, um, you know, those mental health concerns. Uh, is there a particular like mental health that you're looking at, is it, or is it just like new, many different health, mental health and just trying to like broaden the, the whole field? Yeah, so um, there are a few different schools of criticism that kind of approach this that I bring into the conversation with American literature. Um, the first being disability studies, uh, although depending on the critics that you are talking to, um, sometimes mental health fits neatly under the purview of disability studies, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but there's another bur like kind of burgeoning field in the last couple decades, I would say, uh, called MAD studies, uh, which focuses on um, kind of conceptually what has been historically defined as madness. Um, and so that kind of really is birthed in the post-World War II era of the 1960s, um, you know, the burgeoning of the psychiatric movement and uh, scientists really trying to uncover, you know, psychological conditionings and the whole field of psychology really is a, you know, 20th century, um, you know, invention. So uh, I kind of bring those two fields, MAD studies and disability studies, um, together to try and get at uh, 
particular forms of mental distress. So the, the reason I, I address those two, um, MAD studies kind of shifts away typically from uh, discussing a particular form of mental illness, um, whether that be depression or anxiety um, and any number of them. Uh, rather than talking about a form of mental illness itself, they kind of just look at the distress. It's they That's their common word. Okay. Um, and they use that rather as kind of a lens to kind of a catch-all term for uh, all forms versus disability studies might take a little more um, scientific approach of using like the psychiatric terminology itself. Uh, so I'm trying to find a way to bridge those two gaps. <laughs> And when you're uh, looking at sort of American literature and contemporary American literature, so is that something that like sort of when about does that start, and is it all li- American literature from that time point, or like how do you how do you narrow that down? So my my interest in kind of the adolescent experience kind of comes out of um, the fact that adolescence itself is uh, you know 20th century um, invention before 1900. Uh, the adolescent as we know it today certainly didn't exist. You were kind of a child until you were an adult. Um, you went through certain rituals that made you a woman or a man, uh, and but kind of the growth of the industrial revolution and you have more um, children staying at home longer or going to school we start to see this age gap or this age bracket start to form where kids are lingering around they're not quite working yet but they don't have to be you know at home on the farm so kind of what do we do with these with these people essentially Um, and so uh, for me like the literature American literature itself starts to really pay attention to these experiences in a very pronounced way around um, post-World War II, the middle of the century. Um, the 1960s was kind of a burgeoning time for pop culture for a, for a whole host of reasons, British invasion, um, movies, music, everything. Uh, and literature is right along with that. And authors started paying attention to adolescent experiences because there's this bracket of kids who not only had interesting things to say, but they had money to spend. <laughs> so uh. publishers started paying attention to that too. So. So what are some of the novels that you're looking at in particular? Uh, So a critical touchstone piece kind of historically for me is The Catcher in the Rye uh, by J.D. Salinger, uh, which was published in 1951, kind of sets the tone for that post-war era look at adolescence. Um, It Depending, again, which critic you're speaking to, some consider it the inaugural young adult novel. Um, Young adult by today's standards is kind of defined by whether or not it's marketed towards teens specifically, which Catcher wasn't. Salinger didn't write it with the intention that the teenage audience would be the one that would soak it up. Um, But it's kind of often looked to as kind of an inaugural text. No, this is a text that I'm familiar with like as like a name, but mm-hmm. I've actually never read The Catcher in the Rye. Can you tell us, like, can you give a brief synopsis of like what it's about? Sure. Um, so it follows uh, the story of Holden Caulfield, uh, who is a 16-year-old boy um, who spends three days in New York. Uh, the novel starts, he is leaving his prep school that he's been kicked out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't so want his parents. troublemaker. He's a troublemaker. Um, he doesn't want his parents to know. So he kind of just, he uh, just lingers around New York for a few days before he kind of has to bite the bullet and tell them what has happened. Um, but the really fascinating part of the story is that he's actually dealing with the death of his younger brother, Allie. Um, so he has a few siblings, Allie, who has passed away. Uh, and then he has an older brother who's moved out west. And he also has a younger sister. Uh, and so 
Holden is kind of, he's going through New York and he's trying to connect to people. One of the big critical um, comments on Holden is that he's very antisocial. The big word that is associated with him is phony. He calls everyone a phony. He calls everything fake (laughs) phony. He doesn't like movies. Um, When he talks to people, he is uh, very critical of who they are. But I kind of buck the trend on not really seeing him as antisocial. The novel itself, he's trying to talk to people about anything. He wants to connect. Um, And one of the things he wants to connect with is he wants to feel that human connection that's lost in the death of his brother. And um, it's someone that he remembers fondly. Uh, He has a lot of regrets about things he didn't do with his brother. And he's only 16 years old. but he spends much of the narrative trying to deal with that and grapple with the grief um, that he doesn't really have an outlet to do. So much of the novel is made up of him having random conversations with strangers because he's just trying to figure out, like, what am I doing? Am I going to die unexpectedly like his brother did? Um, and so it's I find it to be a very enriching novel. Would it Was it like more of a revelation for him as he took a different view of life? Or was he just trying to find answers that from questions that he got after his younger brother passed away. Yeah, he essentially, in the wake of the death and and him trying to grapple with it, um, he really doesn't like adults, mainly speaking. Uh, Most of the people he calls phony are adults. But one of the reasons in which he does this is because he sees adulthood as something that he wants to stay away from. Uh, the Where the passage, him being the catcher in the rye, comes from is because he wants to protect his younger sister um, and other children like her from turning into adults. So the passage that he so, says... A bit about, of a Peter Pan, in a way. Exactly. Minus the flying. Yes, <laughs> minus the flying. Um, so he... Uh, he has the the passage in which that's cited. He basically that's what he that's his dream job is to be the catcher in the rye that prevents these children. He has a dream he tells his sister from falling off a cliff, and the cliff symbolically is like their innocence is gone. Um, perhaps it's death. Perhaps it's adulthood. You could read that any number of ways. Um, but he wants to be this protector for for because he wasn't able to for Allie, mm. and uh, so this is something that he has to come to terms with that you can't always be that for someone, and so. Phoebe, who is his younger sister, is who he has to learn that lesson for. So there's a moment at the, uh, spoiler alert, more more or less, but there's a, there's a lesson at the end of the novel in which she kind of is in a mildly dangerous position and he wants to stop her. He wants, She's on a merry-go-round going fast and he wants to take her off because he doesn't want her to fall and hurt her head or anything. And he realizes that sometimes you just got to let kids be kids and you got to let them do their thing and you got to let them take their own risks. Um, which is a big lesson for him who kind of wants to protect children uh, as best as he can. And I understand that with The Catcher in the Rye, there was a lot of controversy around the book when it came out. What what was that about? So essentially, once this market started burgeoning about um, adolescent experiences, uh, the field itself of adolescent literature kind of stems from children's literature, which has its history rooted in very much fairy tale morals, conduct literature, and trying to educate children to be adults, essentially. So they a lot of stories are wrapped up in learning a valuable lesson and um, making sure that they knew how to act and how to respond responsibly. Um, so the adolescent field kind of deals with this, and a lot of early adolescent literature is about 
coming to terms with, okay, what are we want to encouraging our teenagers to be? Um, so it's very sanitized. It's very, we don't want them talking about sex. We don't want them talking about drugs or doing drugs or alcohol, anything of those kind of nature. Right. Uh, swearing for sure. And so Catcher kind of comes along and, and is one of those things that just throws all of that out the window. Um, Holden drinks, he smokes, he swears, not very intensely for today's standards, but for 1951, um, he's very, you know, he's, he curses a lot. So uh, anyway, so that was one of the things that sparked a lot of controversy for libraries and public schools and high schools that were putting this in their shelves for kids to read and parents were outraged. So um, I don't know if it still is, but it was one of, if not the most, like, banned book in high school for a number of years. So. Right, right. Was it just um, Ketch's way of just saying, like, you can't hide all of this from children. You have to be able to show them that this is what the adult world is really like. Whether they, whether the parents like it or not, you can't hide this from the kids because if they don't learn it from this, they're going to learn it probably in a more practical approach. Do you think that was an, a plan, or do you think it was just... It was just decided, you know what, I'm not going to follow what the other publishers are doing. Yeah, I think it was definitely something that sparked a lot of conversation and especially was influential in terms of what other young adult and adolescent texts would come to do um, because it is very raw and it's a very real depiction or a gripping depiction of a grieving teenage boy. Um, he makes a lot of mistakes. He does things he's not proud of uh, and he's very clear about some of the things that he does that he knows I probably shouldn't be doing this but eh, I'm going to do it anyway um, which is part of the adolescent experience. You're trying to figure out who you are but what you can do and what society will let you do and so Holden pushes a lot of those boundaries um, expressing kind of his own agency to do so. And so a lot of other novels would come to pick this up in the coming decades by really digging into aspects of teenage life that perhaps society doesn't want us to focus on or perhaps think that it's like, oh, teens don't go through this, but they do. And we get, you know, Essie Hinton's The Outsiders talking about gang violence. We get Beatrice Sparks and Go Ask Alice talking about extensive and very gritty drug use. Um, and so all of these types of topics become uh, fodder for a lot of teens actually go through this and we need to pay attention to that. And are we still seeing that? And do you feel like we're still seeing that in young adult fiction today as well? I think so. I think uh, there's definitely a ton of wonderful young adult texts that are really grappling with some severe issues. And now they're even taking it, like, making. I should say they're taking historical comments in the sense that a lot of novels now we're gripping with very deeply political stuff. So one um, main novel that has been since turned into a movie, but the book has been incredibly successful. I think it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for like almost 100 weeks or something like that is uh, Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, which okay. grapples with police brutality um, with African-Americans. And for to get that perspective from a teenager is something very real for a lot of people not just American citizens, but for a lot. So tell uh, us a little bit about that that book. What's Who's the protagonist in that in that book? What's the character there? Uh, so the character's name there is Star. Uh, she watches a, uh, a friend um, is killed by a police officer. Um, very early in the novel, it's not a plot spoiler. Uh, but uh, so essentially it comes around to how um, the community should respond and how the African-American community specifically should respond um, to police brutality. And uh, so it does a really nice job of kind of 
looking at the inner workings of how people in those community have diverging opinions about some people are like, no, we need to, you know, respect the authority and just keep your mouth shut. And other people are like, no, this isn't right. We need to be vocal about the things. Um, and so Star is one of those she's kind of like a voyeur for a bit where you kind of um, get a sense of what world does she want to live in and as a character she lives in two because she lives in um, kind of a lower income community but she goes to uh, a predominantly white school in a kind of upper class area so depending on where she actually physically is um, geographically speaking in the novel kind of influences how she acts, how she speaks, all those types of things. So she's kind of a, a really dynamic character to kind of investigate this type of issue. So I'm thinking about the mad studies side mm-hmm. of these in the, the this concept of distress, right? Mm-hmm. So does, is that her sort of like two sides, something that plays out in terms of experiencing distress or? Exactly. Um, and so like a novel like that, for example, that might not necessarily uh, fall under the purview of of um, a mad studies or disability studies in the sense that she never really articulates it as such. Um, I think there could be some really interesting work come out of the fact that um, there's kind of a natural anxiety for African Americans in general, but less, but but specifically teenagers who are ro- who are out roaming the streets about the type of lives they have to be cautious of who they encounter, um, especially in positions of authority, and kind of the natural anxiety that comes out of that, that a lot of other people don't have to be cognizant of. So um, I think some investigation into that would be really fruitful for sure. Do you find a distinction or a difference at all with how, uh, if a protagonist is a a female versus a protagonist is a male, how mental health or distress sort of gets uh, dealt with or portrayed in Mm -hmm. your novels? So... Um, one of the, the first chapter I kind of um, marked out for my dissertation really investigates uh, about female protagonists dealing with eating disorders, okay. um, which I'm trying to be or attempted to be very self-reflexive of as a man without any of that personal experience. Um, there were a couple of the novels that I came across uh, in terms of them just talking about distress, but actually about therapy. Um, and so I was curious about how uh, therapy is talked about in these novels because how we address mental health concerns is one of my kind of central questions. Um, and so these novels situate therapy as kind of the catch-all solution, um, which I call attention to as something that's helpful because therapy is helpful in a number of ways for a number of people. Um, the problem that I find in those novels with the way therapy is used is it's kind of used as the solution. Um, And with issues such as eating disorders, there are a lot of factors that go into why young women develop those. Um, And not just young women, but in these novels, they're young women. Um, And so there are a lot of social factors. There's a lot of external, uh, you know, media related factors, the idealization of um, celebrity culture, all of those things that go into encouraging women to hone their bodies in a particular way. Mm. And so the novels engage with all of those things and they kind of address that, oh, these are all the things that are causing this to happen. But if you just go to therapy, it'll be fine. 
which my issue only with that is it suggests that it's women's fault that they mentally don't uh, they're not able to combat all of those external things coming in um, so only if you change your mind as well it's not just changing your body only if you change your mind then you'll live a healthy life right as opposed to recognizing that there might be a lot of systemic sort of larger societal issues that we as a entire society might need to grapple with collectively, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the so the rhetoric of therapy that's kind of used is a little bit disheartening in the sense that it kind of perpetuates that idea that women need to change themselves. It's not society's fault. Oh, if, if you have an issue with the way that the media portrays women or if you have an issue with the way um, you're supposed to look, with the dress you're supposed to wear, the makeup, what have you, mm. um, then it's on you to go to therapy to get that fixed and then everything will be fine, which there should be broader solutions than that. <laughs> and so what about for a male protagonist? Is therapy often presented as a solution in any of the books you look at? Um, not Somewhat, but it's much milder. Uh, so for women in the novels I particularly look at in that chapter, um, therapy is very much encouraged by parents and friends as like, oh, just you got to go talk to someone. You've got to go seek treatment. And the female protagonists are a little more adverse to it. They don't they don't think it's right. They think, you know, there's nothing wrong with me, et cetera. Um, and I'm finding the reverse in the male-centered stories in that um, friends or parents in particular are kind of, they're not huge on supporting it. Uh, it's more hush-hush. It's more men are kind of encouraged not to talk about their emotional pain or distress. They're taught codes of silence. Um, whereas the protagonists, not only in the content of the novels, they want to talk, um, as evidenced in Catcher and others, but uh, the actual form of the novel itself. I mean, these are first-person narratives. The fact that they exist as a story, that the male is talking out loud about his issue, kind of bucks the trend that they shouldn't do it. Right. Um, so there's a couple of interesting points about that, uh, but those are the findings I'm coming to so far. Is it just more of um, men have to be oh, you're not supposed to talk about your feelings. It's supposed to be a closed book. If you have a problem, you have to keep it to yourself. And then you go over to women where society says like, oh, if you have a problem, you need to like to talk about this, try and fix it, go to therapy, everything will be better. But I just find, just find it a bit strange that if they know that ther therapy or any other solution could help a male protagonist with an issue, why is it they really try to like bury it when instead of when it comes to females where they're trying to get it out in the open to attempt to solve it. I think it, it feeds into the idea that predominantly women are socially conditioned. And I, I should say this in, in, um, to a North American context, and this is, um, you know, this certainly goes wider than that, but I don't want to speak wider to what I'm investigating. Sure. Uh, but they're certainly conditioned to, they need to alter themselves and they need to be, you know, on their heels at all times about what they need to do to appear perfect, pure, maintained, um, which isn't to say that men aren't. It's just the way they're conditioned to do so is very much the opposite. So um, for men, it becomes a matter of appearing tough, appearing what, you know, self-sufficient, self -sufficient, that they do not need help. Um, and a lot of this kind of stems out of the, you know, the uh, in, from the post-war era of that soldier type of masculinity, that toughness, that sense that there's nothing wrong with me, I don't need to talk about my pain, um, that everything is fine. You know, for, for soldiers fighting in the war, it was very much important that, like, you can't linger on if your best friend dies beside you because you got to keep moving, you got to do things, you got to, et cetera. So uh, that type of conditioning really starts to 
harbor and develop itself through the 20th century. And teens are picking that up. That's how their parents are teaching them. That's how their fathers are teaching them to act. So you're about in your third year now, is that right, of your PhD? Um, How was it a particular book that got you into this? Or how did you end up getting into studying uh, these characters in these kinds of novels? Uh, Well, the the fun tidbit about myself is that um, after high school, I actually wanted to be a professional wrestler, (laughs) uh, which is a which is a drastic difference. And for anyone who knew me in high school, particularly my teachers, when they hear I'm in a PhD program now, they kind of go, excuse me? (laughs) Uh, That's all I wanted to be. And uh, so I did that for a year and loved it, but realized it wasn't for me. but one of the things I did really enjoy was the storytelling. And uh, the thing that I loved about wrestling was the heroes and the villains and the, the what drama. what Andy Kaufman loved about it too, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that kind of thing still always lingered with me. Um, I was never really a huge reader, but I liked writing and I liked writing stories. And so I kind of eventually fell into the English fold. Um, and uh, yeah, so in, in kind of in preparation, I was late to my undergrad. I didn't start until I was 23. Okay. Um, so a lot of people who I was in class with were, were at least a few years younger than me. Um, and I felt like I had to play catch up a little bit. And because I wasn't a big reader in my teen years, I started reading teen novels because I thought that would be a useful place to start. Um, so novels like Catcher or The Perks of Being a Wallflower um, or Speak by Laurie Hall Sanderson, novels such as that uh, really kind of grip me in. And while I enjoy a lot of different literature, that that is definitely my field of interest that kind of brought me in. And have you been at Western the whole time or? So I, I did my undergrad at Laurentian in Barrie. Uh, at the time they had a satellite campus. They no longer do. Um, but at the time that's where I did it. That's where I'm from. And uh, then I did my master's in Windsor. And now I am here uh, in London. So I'm making the Southern Ontario crawl, basically. Fantastic. And um, this is a so of all the American literatures that you've read, if you had to pick a favorite relating to your study, what would you say it would be? Um, I know we've t- talked a lot about it uh, tonight, but uh, I, I would really encourage people to, to read Catcher if they haven't in a while. Um, I find it's one of those novels that people either love it or they hate it. And for those who hate it, I'm always curious to talk about why that is. I understand there's a lot of problems with it, but, uh, but I'm always fascinated to hear about what didn't work for them. Um, and as a student of literature, I'm, I, that's kind of one of my guiding principles is like, what draws you into the book or what's not working? Um, so it's a bit cliche, which I'm willing to wear that, but uh, I would go with that one. Okay, now I know I need to get from the library next. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, if anyone wanted to contact you to, you know, give you their feedback on uh, Catch on the Rye, how would would people get in touch with you to... Yeah, so my social media handle is uh, at Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, T-L-J. Uh, and that's Twitter, Instagram, the whole thing. Um, on my Instagram, I don't have a lot of interesting things to take photos of, so I use it as kind of my visual Goodreads. Um, so I just Excellent. take pictures of all the books I read. So if you're looking for like a reading list, uh, my Instagram is just that. <laughs> and uh, one last question for you: uh, in terms of like as a grad student, we're always interested in knowing uh, what uh, what else you get up to aside from your own studies. Is there anything else that you're involved with or? Uh, yeah, so for the first couple of years of my program, I was involved with the Graduate English Society, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I opted to kind of take it to that next level. And as of October, I've been the Society of Graduate Students, uh, VP of Student Services. It's been a wonderful experience so far. I'm really enjoying it. So if you'd like to learn more information about SOGS or any of that, you can go to SOGS.ca. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's been a really fulfilling um, job so far. I really like it. 
Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was great to talk about this, and uh, I look forward to checking out your Instagram to augment my own reading list. (laughs) One more thing, since we were just talking about SOGS, is to uh, let you know that uh, the Society of Graduate Students presidential elections are upon us. So if you are a Western grad student, uh, you can vote online for your next SOGS president uh, next week. So polls will open at 8 a.m. on Monday, February 4th, and close. 8 p.m. on Tuesday, February 5th. And more information about uh, the elections and the candidates that are running in this election can be found online at uh, the SOGS website, SOGS.ca. So thank you one more time, uh, Jeremy, for coming on the show. I've been your host, Chantal. I've been your host, Gavin Tolometti. And this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students. Uh, Gradcast is aired every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on CHRW Radio Western 94.9. And if you are interested in being a guest on our show or perhaps interested in being part of our editorial board, you can shoot us an email at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And we also publish our episodes as a podcast on gradcast.ca. And you can find the podcast anywhere that you listen to your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Apple Play. And um, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great night. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.